according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is the volume level acceptable? Do I need to drop down just a little bit? This sounds like Glenn Carnegie levels. All right, we'll take it off just a touch. There we go. Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 7. We mainly will be in Matthew 8 to get us started, and then we will be dealing with some prophetic matters this morning and be wrapping up this episode, episode number 18, the healing of the centurion's servant. I think we've dealt with the miracle itself and the details surrounding it, the discrepancy between, or the apparent discrepancy between Matthew's account and Luke's account. I think we've resolved that now to everyone's satisfaction. But I want to deal with this prophecy that appears in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 8. It's not recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's unique to Matthew's account in this. And uh, when the Lord is marveling at the faith that the centurion is demonstrating, he utters this prophetic statement in verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've got to do some work on this text here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our time to set aside distractions to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do humble ourselves before you this morning, thankful for your mercy, for your grace to continue to provide for a lampstand in this location, to provide for uh, an opportunity in the middle of the week for the Word of God to be taught for those uh, here that are able to be here at this time of day on this day of the week. Father, we ask that you would set aside distractions and give us concentration upon really a passage that provokes more questions than uh, the answers it supplies, but I pray that we would be diligent to present ourselves approved. Father, we thank you that the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Pray that we might be content to uh, accept that the secret things belong to you and to uh, recognize that the, the limitations of our understanding are what they are based upon our place here in time. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are ready now for main point four in the outline, which is simply titled The Prophecy, as we examine verses 11 and 12. Up through this point, we've seen point one, the uh, difficulty, point two, the basic harmonization, point three, the details, and now point four, the prophecy. Verses 11 and 12, we've already read it, dealing with those coming from the east and the west. And actually, we have already given you under this last week, before we ran out of time, subpoint A, coming from the east and the west. And hopefully we can recognize some distinctions here that this is a millennial passage. This is a promise of the second advent. When you think of the nation of Israel, when you think of the... Um, I should have left this on so I can draw some pictures for you this morning. When you just think about the geography of it, let me put just a, a basic picture. I keep telling myself I'm going to get a basic map and, and use that repeatedly up here, but this will work. In uh, classic Bolander artwork, what does that represent? You've seen that line how many times now? That's the... Yeah, that's the coastline of Israel. That's the this is the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So here's Egypt down here. Here's the coastline. You got the, the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. All right. And then of course your Sinai Peninsula like that, and and uh, and here's Egypt. All right. Now, why am I drawing this? Oh, okay. Because here with Jerusalem and Israel and so forth. Now stop to consider. There's an interesting geography and, and the terms that are employed, um, we kind of look at it at a little uh, bit of a, a funky kind of axis here because up is north and down is south. We're, we're accustomed to that. Now, when it comes to Egypt, what direction is Egypt? Yeah, for you and I in our hyper-technical 21st century American world, that's southwest, right? And then if I put Babylon up here, what direction is Babylon. Right, in our hyper-technical American 21st century worldview. 
is remarkable is that uh, the Bible describes Egypt variously as south, coming from the south, uh, the king of the south in the Daniel 11 prophecy and some of the circumstances there. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, these regions would be considered north. So when it talks about gathering from the north and the south, you see the picture. Or other passages and other contexts will refer to Egypt as west. And other passages and other contexts will refer to Babylon as east. Okay? So now when you stop to consider the prophetic language that's used when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, where did they come from? They came from the west. Or they came from the south, depending on which context and which passage you're dealing with. When they returned from the Babylonian captivity, see, I'm trying to show you the difference between the two significant deliverances of Israel's past. In other words, the exodus and then the return from captivity. What I usually refer to as the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah returnings. The Zen returnings. They came back in three waves. First under Zerubbabel, second under Ezra, finally under Nehemiah. My term for it is the Zen returnings. I don't know that... I think that's original to me. I don't think anybody else was dumb enough to give it a name like that. But the Zen returnings. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah returnings. Now those are the two significant uh, events in Israel's history when as a nation God brought them to the land. See, in the Exodus He brought them to the land. Uh, for the very first time as a nation, and in the Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah returnings, he brought them back to the land again as a nation for those who volitionally wanted to go. Now, the distinction being now, and why I'm taking the time to draw these pictures and explain all this, is you can view this first coming as coming from the west. And you can view this coming as coming from the east. But what do we have in this context of our passage we're reading here in Matthew 8 is that we have a gathering that is both from the east and the west. Okay, And so as such, it becomes something greater than the exodus, something greater than the uh, return from captivity, the restoration from captivity. Um, this is now the worldwide gathering of Israel into the land. There will be other passages that refer to a gathering from the north and the south. Okay? But it's speaking of the same thing because of the nature of the geography as we examine it. There will be other passages that include all four directions from the four corners of the earth, from the north, the south, the east, and the west, from the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what this passage is getting at. And so by drawing out the picture, you can see the nature of the exodus and the, and the captivity returnings or the captivity restorations. Uh, this was an either or. See, it was either west in the case of the exodus or east in the case of the captivity restoration. But with the regathering of Israel, it is both east and west. See, And so we're looking forward to the second advent fulfillment. We're looking forward to the time when God restores Israel for the third and final time. Now, or fourth, depending on how you want to, how you want to list it out there. All right. What do I mean by that? God is returning Israel to the land for the third time. Uh, some people chart it out a little differently. They will count uh, that establishment of the earthly nation Israel in 1949. They will count that as the third as the third time. Was God doing that? The Bible describes that as Israel in the land under unbelief. See, God will bring them back to the land at second advent. So depending on how you number it, there are the three or four gatherings into the land. All right. Anyway, all of that now is to set the set the stage for main point A coming from east and west. And passages such as Isaiah 43:6, Isaiah 45:22 speak to this as does Malachi 1:11 and then uh, Matthew 24:31. And uh we looked those all up last week, I think. So I won't take the time to uh, perhaps look them all up this morning. All right. Dealing now with point B, dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Interestingly enough, there's a, not a parallel passage, but there is a similar message that's given in the Gospel of Luke that also adds additional prophets. And so let's 
look at it here, we realize that when the kingdom is restored, when uh, Israel is regathered, that there will be a feast. And, and we'll just leave it at that for the moment. As it's described in Matthew 8, uh, reclining at the table, that speaks of a feast. And uh, honored guests at that feast, possibly even the hosts of that feast, are then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, And we will let it go at that. Uh, we won't take it further for this moment. Uh, we'll just accept the fact that this is in a kingdom context. This is a feast with the patriarchs. And it, the uh, invitation list is exclusive. Can we, can we let it go with that? You recognize that some are admitted and some aren't. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. We'll talk about why th- those who are not admitted to be cast out meaning they wanted to be in there, but they were cast out. Okay, You can't be cast out of some place that you're not trying to get into, right? If you've ever, I mean, if you've ever, well, <laughs> if you've ever been cast out of a place, okay, bouncers or whatever other, okay, Gary knows what I'm talking about, then what it means is you were trying to get in there in the first place. You can't be cast out of something unless you were trying to get in there in the first place or you were in there in the first place and then uh, legitimately and then removed for a cause or whatever reason. So let's just keep this in mind. It's a feast. There is an invitation list and then there are those who are not acceptable. And so they are removed. And we'll talk more about that here in a moment. What is the outer darkness? What is the weeping and gnashing of teeth? And what does it mean the sons of the kingdom can't get in? It's the kingdom, I thought. Okay, but we'll deal with that in a similar passage in Luke. We add the remainder of the prophets, Luke 13. Remember, we don't view these passages as contradictory. We view them as complementary. And in Luke 13, this uh, is not the same episode. This is not during the healing of the centurion's son. This is a separate episode here as he's passing through in a variety of villages and different things. And he tells them about the, the straight and narrow and... and uh, the things here, then uh, interestingly enough, uh, um, let me just read through it. Uh, He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, we'll give you more context on that later. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? You know, it's remarkable. They were disappointed. They were disappointed. Here's the Lord. He's traveling from place to place and he's not getting the response that some folks thought that he should be getting. See, showing you that with human viewpoint, no matter who the minister is, people are going to be disappointed that we're not getting the numbers we think we should be getting. Okay, And so obviously it's the pastor's fault because if we had a better pastor, we'd have more people. Well, you can't blame the Lord for falling short in this. He's perfect in everything that he does. So why is it there's just a few who are being saved? And he says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us in your streets or in our streets. I'm sorry. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west and the north and the south. Remember I told you there's four different directions that are mentioned there. And uh, will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. All right, now this is in a different context, but it's the same teaching. It's the same. So we get the idea that the Lord delivered this message multiple times. He delivered it to that centurion at the time that he healed the centurion slave. He, he delivers it here in the context of what happens in, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 13. All right. It's a message that he delivered on more than one occasion, probably many occasions to try to get that message across. So we get a little bit more information about this group that thinks they have entrance into the kingdom of heaven and they don't. And they think that it's based upon uh, the fact that they listened to his message and that they uh, they had fellowship time with him. They ate with him. 
See, well, they didn't believe in him. They didn't enter into the kingdom of God on the basis of faith. And there's there's more to go into that. I think I'm going to reserve more of those details until. Well, let me let me uh, throw some more of these questions out here in a moment. But we will uh, because he does teach this on a number of occasions. We will get back to this again. In uh, the last Judean and Prean ministry, episode number 20. All right. When he's on his way to the cross. And I think we'll deal more with it at that point of time. Uh, Because I think it answers a lot of issues when it talks about. Because here he doesn't say anything about the door being shut. Here he doesn't say anything about time is drawing to a close. In Luke he does. In Luke he says, you know, uh, that opportunity is, is, is quickly closing. And, and we really want to grab hold of that teaching because it applies to us in the church. When you stop to consider that the rapture can happen today, if you've been putting off giving the gospel to somebody, how much longer are you going to put it off? The door could close today. When you, if you think about the rapture as a door, if you think about the rapture as the final opportunity for those who have rejected the gospel in the church age, stop to consider the, the aspect of this closed door uh, urgency. So we'll deal more with that when we, as we approach the crucifixion in Luke 13. Now, so it's, it's beyond simply Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of the prophets are going to be in attendance. We can, we can think of this as the patriarchal prophetic banquet. Okay, it's kind of a a working title. I've given it for the moment. I may change my mind on that. But for now, I'm simply calling it the patriarchal prophetic banquet. Patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who are also prophets. And then the remainder of the prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, all of the prophets are going to be there along with the patriarchs. And uh, folks want to go in there to be a part of that banquet and they will not be permitted they will not be permitted. Now, is this the same as, I'm going to give you some other banquets, eating and drinking at the Lord's table in the Lord's kingdom. There's a passage in Luke 22:30. Let's look at it. Some people would say, well, that's all the same thing. Others look at it and say, no, this appears to be something different. So I ask the question, is this the same as eating and drinking at the Lord's table in the Lord's kingdom? Luke 22:30. I, I'm. I think we we would all agree that the the Matthew 8 and the Luke 13 passages are the same thing. That he's teaching about the the patriarchal prophetic feast. Okay, and if I can find a, a, a synonym for feast that starts with P, I'll use that. The the patriarchal prophetic. There's got to be a feast word that starts with P. Anyway. Um, Party, well, that might work. If uh, so, we, we identify those Matthew eight, Luke thirteen, that, that patriarchal uh, prophetic party. That's the same. But what about this one? Is this the same thing, or is this something different? Luke twenty two thirty, and this is actually in the upper room, and um, they're all busy trying to figure out who the greatest is going to be, right? <laughs> Verse twenty four. They have all this great debate. Even after he told them he was going to be betrayed, well, they have a short discussion in verse 23 about, well, who's going to do it? And then they move on to more important topics in verse 24, like which one of us is, uh, is the greatest. The dispute as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And, uh, of course, he then rebukes them and gives them more biblical information on that. But now notice in verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. There is a reward for that. That there is a reward for these apostles of the Lamb, for these that ministered during the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation, as the apostles of the Lamb. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right? I believe this is to be a separate table. This is not the same as the patriarchal prophetic feast. This is the Lord's table. This is such as in his private quarters when he takes of his own. This isn't a public feast. This is in his own private quarters, such as remember when David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. 
Recall that he wanted to know, does Saul have any heirs that are left alive? And he finds that there's this crippled son of Jonathan who's still alive. And David brings Mephibosheth into his home to dine at his table. A tremendous honor. And the those that stood by him in his trials, the apostles of the Lamb, are those that will have that privilege in uh, in the kingdom. I believe that to be a separate issue than what we're looking at this morning. Secondly, how about the marriage supper of the Lamb? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that the same as the, the Matthew 8 patriarchal prophetic fee party? Is that the same as what the Lord's promising these disciples? Or is it something different? I believe these are all different. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9, Matthew 22, Luke 14. We'll have some things on the marriage supper coming up. And uh, some interesting Studies on uh, what's the difference between the marriage supper and the marriage feast. Or should we be drawing such a distinction? Revelation 19. We do have the book of Revelation coming up in our Sunday morning series, uh, study, by the way. Revelation 19.9. The voice in heaven and the elders are singing and everyone's shouting amen, hallelujah, and some tremendous things taking place in, uh, in the heavens. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And He said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. So it is a blessing, but you must be there by invitation. You cannot storm your way in and you cannot come just any old way that you feel like it. And this is uh, detailed for us in Matthew 22 and Luke 14. We won't have to read both of them. Let's go ahead and read the Luke one, though. Because we've already seen Luke 13 with the patriarchal prophetic feast. We've seen Luke 22 with the uh, disciples sitting on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes and eating at the Lord's table. So let's keep... Luke going here with Luke 14. And it helps that we have the same gospel record giving us these different um, dining events because uh, it really helps to, I think, clarify the fact that we're dealing with different uh, episodes rather than one and the same. Luke 14. Verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Can you imagine? I've got something better to do. <laughs> how do you when you are, when it comes time to RSVP for this? How do you say no? <laughs> I got something better. To do. I just bought a piece of land. Another one said, "I've bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused." Another one said, "I've married a wife. For that reason, I cannot come." A slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and he said to a slave, "Go out at once in the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame." And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done. There's still more room. Interestingly enough, they were willing to come. The, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame, they didn't have anything better to do. They weren't all caught up in all these things with, uh, with uh, business and commerce and family life and all of that. The master said to the slave, go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in so that uh, my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. All right, similar to what the Lord said in with respect to the prophetic patriarchal uh, prophetic feast in that many will come from east and west, but these guys, the sons of the kingdom, will not. Uh, Matthew 22. I didn't think we'd look at both of these. Let's go ahead. Matthew 22. Because uh, in Luke, it just tells us that it's a dinner, a big dinner with many invited. In Matthew, it's a parable. And uh, we're told that it is a likening of the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And we find very similar outline of what takes place here. 
The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. All right. And then uh, others get invited, and then this one fellow shows up, and he's not dressed right. And there's, uh, there's things there. All right. I don't want to get lost in that because that would lead to questions i'm not ready for <laughs> we will deal with the wedding supper of the lamb when we get to that point of time both in life of christ series and also in the book of revelation as we approach it clearly it's different from the prophetic patriarchal prophetic feast to what we're looking at today in matthew chapter a there's also the feast of fat things which i can start to get offended by feast of fat things isaiah 25 6 through 9 Here we go back to the Old Testament for a uh, prophetic anticipation. Isaiah 25. Keeping in mind that much of what we understand today for the wedding supper, the bridal supper of the Lamb, for the material that's revealed in Revelation, that can be revealed. Why? It can be revealed because it comes after the mystery of the church has been revealed. See, the nature of the church as the bride of Christ, the nature of the church as a body of believers that is neither Jew nor Gentile, all the things that we now take for granted, we understand because of where we are, that we have a New Testament. We have the epistles of the New Testament to reveal to us the nature of the church, the nature of the bride of Christ, the nature of the wedding feast. So we have the most amount of detail imaginable they didn't have that available to them in the gospels when jesus christ is teaching and the records we have in the gospel of matthew the gospel of luke he can give a parable about a marriage feast but they're not going to understand the totality of it until such time as the church is unfolded and as we saw in luke's record in luke 14 it wasn't even referred to as a wedding feast it was simply referred to as a great big feast now in isaiah 25 it's called a feast of fat things and, um, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. I love that verse. Speaking of God's sovereign plan and the grace eternal plan of the ages. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a, is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silent. Then we get to verse 6. And we understand the context for um, some of these other issues to be tribulational in preparation for second advent. Verse 6, Now the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. All peoples. Just the Jews? No, all peoples. The word peoples there and referencing every single race, tribe, nation, and so forth. For all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine. And this lavish banquet is, um, I think in the King James rendered that, fat things. I think that's where I got the title. <laughs> lavish banquet is probably more uh, kind to uh, folks that would uh, prefer to have uh, about 20 less pounds than they're presently carrying. Um, Isaiah 25, 6. Yeah, lavish banquet. Fat things. There it is. So, when people ask, why do you prefer the New American Standard over the King James? Just tell them. Isaiah 25.6. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um, we've got something else coming up, too, in 1 Corinthians, by the way. We've got to learn what the shambles are all about. Or uh, we've got to switch from a King James text when we get to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, oh, 26, maybe. Something like that. It talks about the shambles which is the meat market. But what's the shambles? You know, who knows what the shambles are? 
They must have back in the 17th century know what the shambles were all about. All right. So is that the same? What is this feast all about? Let's finish reading it. Um, a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. You know, of all the veil teaching I've ever seen, the veil from the tabernacle, the veil from the temple, the veil, uh, which is his flesh, which was pierced on our behalf that we can enter in. Here is a veil that I've yet to see a pastor develop and explain what is the Gentile veil. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for Yahweh, that is the Lord, has spoken. Anyway, there's another feast. Is that one and the same? No. This one actually is a feast in the, in the fullness of times. Once the great white throne is complete, once the new heavens and new earth are established, once all unbelievers are done away with to swallow up death from all time, there's death in the millennium. This can't be a millennial feast. And so uh, there's circumstances there. All right. I will simply let it go with this statement. A systematic study of eschatological eating events is greatly needed. <laughs> a systematic study of eschatological eating events is greatly needed. We can sort out our marriage supper from our marriage feast. So we can sort out the feast of fat things to the, uh, the Lord's table and the Lord's kingdom with the twelve tribal princes, the apostles of the Lamb that are mentioned in Luke 22. The other feasting that takes place. It would be good to have a, a scorecard to sort those all out. All right. Now, point C, I want to start to explore what this outer darkness is dealing with. So let's return back to Matthew 8 and let's look at outer darkness. Matthew 8. Again, I say to you that many, not all, Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. What is this outer darkness? Interestingly enough, it's mentioned three times here in the Gospel of Matthew, or all three times it's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 25, 30. The only times that we have this phrase, outer darkness, are these three times, they're all in the Gospel of Matthew. They're all in the context of the kingdom. We want to be careful, though, if we try to equate this with the black darkness that we read about in Second Peter 2, that we read about in, the, in uh, the book of Jude. And we'll examine those here in a moment. Um, if I turn off these lights, are we in darkness? No. But it's darker than it was a moment ago, wasn't it? But what's coming in from those windows? Yeah. So it's darker inside than outside if we turn off the lights and light comes from outside the window and illuminates us here a little bit. This expression, outer darkness, is in contrast with what? It's in contrast with what's inside. Okay? Well, in, in, this, in this text, I'm not trying to throw all these other texts in here yet. I'm just looking at this text. Okay? They want to come in. Many will come from east and west and recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out okay, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we'll talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth under point D. But right now we're just dealing with outer darkness. Let's look at these other Matthew texts. So hold your finger there. Look at Matthew 22:13. So the outer darkness is, is a comparison with the inner light. It's in a comparison with those that are feasting with the prophets, those that are blessed to have that as a reward. It's not, it's not the blackness of darkness. It's not the utter darkness. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not casting them into uh, hell or the lake of fire. All right? Matthew 22:13. 13. 
Here is the conclusion to the parable of the marriage feast. We just read uh, part of this. And uh, those that were invited, they had better things to do. And then uh, the king was enraged. He sent armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. That's verse 7. says to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore the main highways, as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. They go out. And uh, then he finds this man without wedding clothes. Said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, and the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. All right, there's outer darkness. Notice it's also linked to weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's also linked to this feast and the man that was invited but was not dressed appropriately, did not come in the right um, manner. Chapter 25 and verse 30. See, people that tell you, well, it doesn't really matter how we come. It doesn't really matter what we believe. It doesn't really matter how we approach God. We can come on our terms. Say, well, tell it to that guy. It mattered to him, didn't it? Tell it to Cain. It mattered what sacrifice he brought, didn't it? All right, uh, Matthew 25, 30. Another kingdom passage here. They're being rewarded for their talents. If what they did with what they were given didn't make a difference if they were given a lot or given little, the difference was what did they do with what was given to them? And um, the one that just buried it, he uh, has it taken away. And there's the teaching that goes into that. Then verse 29 to everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. We better start to wake up and, and recognize what the impact of that teaching is all about because we've been given much. And if we don't do anything with it, then uh, we're going to be described here in this passage as ones who don't have, and then even what we do have will be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. Mm, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful slave from verse 21, or well done, good and faithful slave from verse 23. I don't want to hear you wicked, lazy slave from verse 26. All right. And we'll have more teaching on this coming up. I'll just leave these thoughts with you for this morning. It's either going to be well done, good and faithful slave or you wicked, lazy slave. There doesn't appear to be middle ground. <laughs> you know, it appears to be a, a pass fail kind of thing. Well done or you wicked, lazy slave. Okay. And uh, then comes the revocation of what he had been given. And then the and it's given to the one who has ten, by the way. And uh, and then it says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there again, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Now, and then that leads into the sheep and goat judgment context here at the beginning of the millennial kingdom in dealing with uh, the Gentile nations at that time. So, there's the outer darkness. People who thought they had entrance, <laughs> in some cases, thought that it was, well, you know, we listened to you when you were teaching. We fed you afterwards. <laughs> right? How many people think that's what it takes to get to heaven? Go to church on a Sunday morning, take the pastor out occasionally. Are you saved? <laughs> that little detail of salvation that interest you any okay now it's not the same we want to we want to be clear now it's not the same as the black darkness that we read about in second peter 2 we read about in jude so let's look at some of these second peter 2 second peter chapter 2 taught this passage on a number of occasions. It's not a simple passage to develop along with the Jude parallel, but I think we've done well with it and we're uh, solid on, on our approach. It says, uh, with false prophets and the, and the danger of, of the heresy they introduce. I want you to notice something here. False prophets arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you 
who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destructions upon themselves. Now, they're headed to hell. Uh, hell is mentioned in verse 4, pits of darkness reserved for judgment. See, this is the, uh, the blackness of darkness. It's, called, it's mentioned in verse 17 as well. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the blackness of darkness or the black darkness has been reserved. All right. So it's the same context and it's the same um, judgment whereupon these uh, fallen angels are destined to whereupon um, when it says in verse four, God did not spare angels when they sinned. This is their ultimate destiny. All right. The blackness of darkness. And this is where these false teachers are going to go. These false uh, teachers. Now, not every false teacher is an unbeliever. Uh, there's Quite often, uh, it could be a believer that's caught up in false teaching. He's regenerate. He's born again. And he just gets mixed up in false teaching. He becomes a teacher of destructive heresies and so forth. And that's a separate matter. You can have regenerate false teachers, but that's not what's in view here. This passage is strictly looking at unbelievers... Uh, those that uh, these springs without water, misdriven by a storm, uh, for whom the black darkness has been revealed, all right, or been reserved. So, in this context, we have the uh, the issues here. Now, as I mentioned, there there are glimpses to. Uh, Matters that have to be decided in terms of they've been they've escaped the defilements of the world and says in verse 20 by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they're again entangled by them and they're overcome. This last state has become worse for them than the first. So some people do take this to be that they are regenerate, but then they're caught back up into false teaching. Anyway, all I'm trying to highlight from this text, though, is the outer dark, uh, not the outer darkness, the blackness of darkness. You see the difference? It's not the outer darkness. This is the blackness of darkness. This is the uh, this is the um, the final estate for fallen angels and unbelievers alike. Jude, likewise, is the parallel to this. Verse six and verse 13 in the book of Jude. Interestingly enough, false teachers, again in view, uh, I call them creeps because they crept in unnoticed. They were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Condemnation. Remember, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. These guys, though, are marked out for condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice uh, the reminder that how the Lord destroyed those who did not believe after he brought them out of Egypt. So there was judgment upon the Exodus generation. Verse 6, angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, they in the same way as these, they in the same way as these angels who did not keep their own domain, uh, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They are being punished in eternal fire. And it goes on down. But finally, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 13. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. How long is forever? Forever. Okay. Now, I want you to start to think about in terms of um, the, 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 the stopping places along the way to hell, on the way to the lake of fire. Okay? For instance, um, the bonds of, of darkness in verse 6 where the angels are. The uh, eternal fire of verse 7 where the uh, Gentile unbelievers of Sodom and Gomorrah are presently in. Uh, the fact that at the great white throne judgment, hell is emptied. Hell is emptied and death and Hades give up their dead and they stand before the great white throne. They're actually resurrected to stand judgment and then be cast into the lake of fire. You've had that before? All right. So we've got a concept where darkness can be a 
judgment short of the eternal judgment. You following this? And that this outer darkness where those who were trying to get into the wedding feast are now evicted from the wedding feast and they are in an outer darkness whereupon there is weeping and gnashing of teeth that is not to say that they are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Okay? I'm just trying to demonstrate that there are there are judgments of darkness that fall short of the eternal lake of fire. And this outer darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth is exactly that. It is an opportunity to uh, for these individuals here that have fallen short, that have not uh, attained to the patriarchal feast or to the wedding feast in those different contexts. It is an opportunity for them, having been shut out, to consider their ways. Because where are they? They're still on earth. They're still on earth. See? And they have, in the, in the uh, Matthew 24 context, the Gentile nations have not yet been brought into the uh, sheep and goat judgment. Where every unbeliever then is, is from the Gentiles is cast into hell. The Jewish unbelievers have not yet been brought to the wilderness judgment where every unbelieving Jewish person is cast into hell. When the millennium fully begins, only believers will be present. See? But that comes after, that becomes as a result of the wilderness judgment of Israel. Removing every unbelieving Jew. And that comes as a result of the sheep and goat judgment. Removing every unbelieving Gentile. Once those two judgments take place, then the millennial reign commences for a thousand years, beginning with 100% redeemed. Making sense? Okay. Because I think some, in some cases we, we uh, confuse it when we say that um, Jesus Christ lands, Armageddon, we're the winners, hooray, hooray. Now, right now, today, this very instant, every unbeliever goes to hell. There is a period of time before those judgments take place on the earth. As the defeated unbelievers who had marched under the banner of Antichrist those that actually live through, because the blood's going to be as high as the bridle on the horses, but those who live through that are given this opportunity to, uh, to, to get saved when it comes right down to it. All right. There's, um, there's other things that go into this. Let me... Let me move on, though, to D, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Point D, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe there are seven references to this. Listed on the screen. Yes, seven of them. If you count Matthew 13 twice. Because uh, there's Matthew 8.12. There's Matthew 13.42. Also verse 50 of that chapter. There's Matthew 22:13, 24:51, as well as Luke 13:28. We've already read Luke 13. And we've read Matthew 8, we've read Matthew 22, we've read Matthew 24. We have not yet read Matthew 25. Did we? Yes, we did. There was an outer darkness passage there. Okay. So when you write those down, I meant to underline some of these. We can underline Matthew 8:12 because that's an outer darkness passage. We can underline Matthew 22:13. And we can underline Matthew 25:30. Because out of the seven weeping and gnashing of teeth passages, 3 of them are also outer darkness passages. Okay, all three of the outer darkness passages are weeping and gnashing of teeth passages, but they're not the only weeping and gnashing of teeth passages. Did I say that right? 
All three of the outer darkness passages are weeping and gnashing of teeth passages, but they're not the only ones. There are four additional weeping and gnashing of teeth passages that are not outer, that do not reference the outer darkness. Okay, Luke thirteen twenty eight does not reference the outer darkness, but I'll put a I'll put a uh, dash line under it because it doesn't mention it, but it's clearly a parallel to Matthew eight. And so I wouldn't have any problem understanding it. Let's look at these other ones. Matthew 13. Well, let's look at Matthew 24 because we were just there a moment ago. Matthew 24. All right, Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave, it says in verse 45, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? I thought we were in this text a moment ago. I guess we have not been in this text yet. Uh, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. It doesn't say with the unbelievers. It says with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's a weeping and gnashing of teeth passage. Does not mention outer darkness. But you wonder if in the context. If it could. Alright. And then finally Matthew 13. Let's look at these par- uh, parables. Got a lot of ground to cover. Before we get to Matthew 13. But this is one of the significant discourses in Matthew. Like Sermon on the Mount. Which we just finished. The. The. Uh, Parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 will be a significant uh, study for us when we get to that point. Matthew 13:42. Well, we have the tares, the explanation of the tares. That the wheat grow up in the same field and then the tares grow up at the same field. The field is the world. This is the explanation. Uh, Verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and for the field, I'm sorry, the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the terrors are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice, though, it's not called outer darkness. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 50. See, because of the similarities of this text, people want to equate the two. What I'm trying to explain is that, yes, there are similarities, but there are also differences. They have this same problem when they try to make this a rapture passage. The same exact problem. They say, well, it's, it's, there's similarities. You know, there's a gathering. Of course there's a gathering. Is the rapture a gathering? You bet the rapture is a gathering. It's a gathering of saints up in glory to be with the Lord in the air. To return to the home that he's gone to prepare 2,000 years ago. Not to say that it's identical with this event. You run into trouble when you try to equate those two. And uh, also in verse 50 with the dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. So there is a weeping and gnashing of teeth passage that does not have outer darkness. So what we're trying to say is because we have this phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth, we associate the passages together, but are we right for doing that? Or do we want to observe the differences for what they are and then let the similarities be similarities but not identical? I think that's where we where we want to go with this because 
it, it's it's a different it's a different thing to say that it's similar than to say it's one and the same. For example, because we're going to develop out how the fact that many of these that are coming to the to the feast are in fact regenerate. They are in fact resurrected. They are in fact in resurrection bodies. They're Old Testament saints who think that they're going to be invited to this feast, but they're not. See, they're saved. They're resurrected. They are sons of the kingdom. But they're not invited to this feast. And so their laments are described with weeping and gnashing of teeth terminology that is similar to the terminology employed when an unbeliever is thrown into the lake of fire. But we're not saying that they get thrown into the lake of fire. I can't let you walk out of here today if you're confused on this. I'll have to lock the door and make sure we're clear. The lament is similar. The lament is similar, and I'll show you why. Now, so point one, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's used seven times in the New Testament. Six of them are in parables. If you don't handle the parable as a parable, you end up in trouble. The one time that is not used in a parable is the time we're looking at this morning, is the Matthew 8.12 application. It's the one time that's not used as a parable. It's spoken of in a narrative prophecy. Jesus Christ says, many will come from the east and the west. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. It's a phrase that's used seven times in the New Testament. Six of them are parables. The only one that's not is Matthew 8, 12. Secondly, we have definite articles. In other words, the. You get excited about the. Do you ever get excited about the? I was playing Scrabble yesterday and I scored a lot of points for the word the. Definite articles highlight the unique and extreme character of this activity. It's not just weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Definite articles highlight the unique and extreme character of this activity. It is the weeping and the gnashing. That's why you have the ha and the ha. Ha klausmas, kai ha brugmas. The weeping and the gnashing. It's not just weeping and gnashing in general. This is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, specifying a particular unique and extreme care, uh, judgment. It's like we talk about tribulation. In the world you will have tribulation, right? The Lord promised us that. He said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. There's a promise of hope. Well, we have tribulation. It's called the Christian way of life. If you don't have tribulation, something's wrong. All right? So just see me after class. We'll try to assign some to you. If you, don't, if you think you don't presently have enough going on in your life. But there's a difference between tribulation in general and the tribulation, Right? We are not going to go through the tribulation because we are in Christ and delivered from the wrath to come. Well, here is something different than the general weeping and gnashing of teeth, specifically the weeping, the gnashing, highlighting the circumstance here where this sorrow and loss is unlike anything. Start to imagine this is the one, the greatest feast that these Jewish believers could have ever anticipated dining with their patriarchs, dining with their prophets. <laughs> and they're excluded. A one-time only feast in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they are sons of the kingdom who are being excluded while this uh, Gentile centurion from Capernaum will be sitting there dining with the patriarchs and with the prophets. While the remainder, they're saved. They're resurrected like the centurions resurrected. But they're not in this feast. They're weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a, in a manner of grief similar 
to the grief expressed by the unregenerate when they're cast into the lake of fire. The sense of sorrow and loss is magnified. We'll end with this. The sense of sorrow and loss... We'll almost end with this. I'll I'll go ahead and wrap up this episode so we can move on to something different next week. The sense of sorrow and loss is magnified by the unnecessary nature of it. You ever just kick yourself because you're experiencing some consequences that you just didn't have to? Because, you know, if you weren't such a big dummy, you wouldn't have done that and then you wouldn't have... I'm talking to myself. I'm not looking at anyone when I say these things. But you're experiencing a consequence. It's a consequence of your own activity. In my mind, that's worse than undeserved suffering. (laughs) You know, undeserved suffering. I didn't do it, didn't deserve it. God's testing me. Okay, I'll put up with it. I'll glorify Christ, whatever he wants me to do. But by golly, if this is my own discipline, because I'm an idiot, a rebel, a stiff-necked sinner... Man, you mean I threw that away? I had this reward. I threw away my confidence, which has a great reward. I let someone take my crown. The sense of sorrow and loss is magnified by the unnecessary nature of it. Each participant could have, should have, and now wishes they would have made different decisions in their Christian walk. Could have, should have, and now wishes they would have. See, we all have them. Every single one of us. We all have the could haves, would haves, and should haves, don't we? And the, the blessing is, is that we're not raptured yet. So no matter how many could haves, would haves, and should haves we have behind us, right now, today, we can make better choices. Right now, today, we can glorify Jesus Christ with every thought, word, and deed. Right now, today, tomorrow, on for however many days he delays and gives us in his mercy, we can make right decisions, lay up treasures in heaven. We can strive to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Because I don't want to be in the outer darkness weeping and gnashing teeth in the context of what applies to a church-age saint. And in upcoming classes, we'll make that very clear. This is not a church-age passage. This uh, patriarchal prophetic uh, feast reward is for Jewish believers and their stewardship. All right. We, uh, by the way, when when you are the bride, you're invited. (laughs) And, And you don't just have an invitation as a guest. You're you're assumed to be there as a as a participant in the wedding. Okay, let me just make that clear: the bride doesn't get an invitation to her own wedding. It's her father that's sending out those invitations, right? So all of these parables and all of these prophecies and all these things about the wedding feast and the invited guests, all these idiots that try to turn that into a church age passage, like we're guests. We're not guests. What's that? We're the bride. Man, figure something out. Get it right. We're the bride. All right. The, the epilogue to this, and I'll just give it to you under point five uh, as we wrap up the the uh, episode here back in Matthew 8 with the centurion. In the Matthew record, we're not told that the centurion just runs off back to Capernaum to see if his slave's okay. There's no mention of the centurion leaving Jesus Christ. He is given the message. He's given Bible class. He believes the miracle's done. For all we know, he sticks around for more Bible class. In Matthew 8:13. As the Matthew record comes to a close. Jesus said to the centurion, "Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed." And the servant was healed at that very moment. But it doesn't say what the centurion does. Jesus said, go, doesn't say that he went. There's silence with the messengers, though. They go running off immediately, (laughs) you know, as if they've got to go double check, you know, make sure he said it was going to happen. It's one of those Jesus said it. I'm not sure I believe it yet. I want to go. I want to go see. Luke seven and verse 10. 
when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Wow. Surprise, surprise. What do you know? The centurion did not immediately go, but the centurion's messengers did go. Different accounts, different responses to the promise in a remarkable way. All right. That wraps this up. We will see a resurrection next week, a resuscitation, the first of three that Jesus Christ will restore to physical life, a widow's son. And uh, we'll deal with that. That comes out of Luke 7, 11 through 17, if you want to read ahead of time and get prepared. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your mercy, love, and grace. Father, uh, we've seen some passages that don't strictly apply to us, but the principles certainly do. Uh, Father, we, uh, we recognize we are accountable. We recognize that uh, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. We understand that to whom much is given shall much be required. So if these passages we've seen today have left a sense of urgency in us, I pray that we would come to understand that the urgency is actually magnified far and above any passage we've looked at today. Looking at passages of judgment that apply to Israel and their stewardship. Father, I pray that we would recognize that we at any moment can be called to give an account that each one of us will give an account of ourselves before God. We all must stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And I pray, Father, that we might be uh, mindful of that with every thought, word, and deed as we proceed forward, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Thank you, Father, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.